Hi, this is Andrew Goodall and Charlie Goodchild, and you're listening to the Health Space Podcast. This is the podcast where we dive deep into health-related questions and topical issues relevant to us all. The world of health and medicine is messy, full of contrasting opinions and misleading advice. We will challenge myths and common misconceptions by exploring the evidence and speaking to leading experts along the way. We are physiotherapists and have been friends since university and share the same belief that everyone deserves the opportunity to access high quality, up-to-date health information. When it comes to health, we believe that better never ends. Thanks for listening and let's dive straight in. Well, we're back for podcasting 2022. We're here podcasting again. We've decided to give face-to-face podcasts another go. We've managed to, to get our next guest here in the room with us. So hopefully that should really help with the conversation, help us uh, really get to the depth of the topic and, and yeah, I'm sure it'll help the flow. So we're actually at Pure Sports Medicine today in St Paul's, London. So we're using one of the one of the rooms. Uh, Andy, how's your how's your week been? How's your day going? How's your year been so far? Yeah, it's good. Everyone's starting to get back to normal. People are coming back to the city. Good to see the vibes uh, returning back to Canary Wharf. And today, walking around St Paul's, it looks nice and busy. Nice start seeing people face to face again. Um, these sort of interactions face to face are always better. We were just saying before we come on, the organic chat is always improved makes the conversation the, the best anyway so it's nice to have uh, our guests with us today like charlie said we're at st paul's uh, we've got richard tucker here with us today we're looking to chat everything about performance improvement really probably good for richard to introduce a little bit about what he does because it's slightly off of some of the, the other stuff we've done but it's all about linking to improving your performance and trying to get some some real testing around that and how we can frame your training for, for such. So Richard, tell us a little bit about you and your career and what you do here with your, your testing lab. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks guys. It's um, good to be here. Um, I suppose to give you the very watered down introduction on myself. So originally my career started in the fields of strength and conditioning. So I was an S&C coach for close to 10 to 11 years where I worked in professional rugby environments mainly taking me to work in super rugby in New Zealand with the Auckland Blues I was there for three to four seasons um, came out to the UK very very briefly got a job working for the Portuguese National Rugby Federation where I headed up the performance team there so there for two years great experience moved back to work with Exeter Chiefs in the premiership was there for three, three or four seasons, and then moved to London Scottish, um, which was the last, my last role working in professional rugby environments. In between those kind of posts, I'd studied for a couple of postgraduate degrees. So I got one, one master's degree in sport and exercise nutrition, um, and then most recently got a MSc in advanced physiology. So, long story short, as my kind of career decided to step away from professional rugby. I set up kind of working for myself, a bit of a bold move, and just decided that I wanted to try and bring the fields of SNC, nutrition, anatomy, physiology, all under one kind of roof, as it were, and set up what is now known as the Human Performance Lab, where I'm based out of the St. Paul's practice for pure sports medicine. And we do a number of things, but mainly we kind of use a bit of a mantra that if you're not testing, you're guessing. And through that, we will 
generally all the interventions that we will look to put in place with athletes and that's whether or not they are a triathlete, a boxer, UFC fighter, whoever it is, we look to try and put the interventions in place that is going to be based off objective data. Now I think there's a common kind of phrase within the industry, within the kind of this performance realm of evidence-based and yes I think we should be evidence-based but I prefer to use the, the term evidence-informed. So yes we will do some testing and some get some metrics off each individual so we can then put a, a program in place whether it's from a nutritional perspective from an SNC, although I tend to stay away from the SNC side of things now and look to to work with people such as the SNC coaches at, at Pure Sports, and that way we can be assured that every intervention we're putting in place with people are as individualised and bespoke to them as possible, rather than just going online, downloading a program, whether it's from a marathon perspective whether it's a nutrition program, et cetera, et cetera. So we will do some testing, get some data off someone, and then look to fundamentally put a program in place with that person that is entirely individualized and bespoke generally. Can you give us a, an example about why the bespoke nature of what you do is so important and about how the off-the-shelf plans, for example, aren't always the best option? Yeah, I mean, we're all different and you know we've all got different makeups we've all got different strengths and weaknesses and you know if i follow the same nutritional program and let's just take it as real basic kind of intervention i'm going to follow x number of calories per day i'm going to consume x number of protein fats carbohydrates etc as say you are my body will have a totally different or potentially a totally different response to that as what you would do so therefore, you know, kind of, is that working to my strengths or is it working to my weaknesses or so on and so on? So I just think that, you know, and I might be a little bit biased and this might be a bit of a debatable subject, but I think that the health and fitness industry as a whole is potentially failing people because it is so generic and, you know, it's, it is, I just want to go download something off the internet. The internet is so vast these days that we can just find information on anything whether it's from a credible source or not, we're, we're just finding that we've got to put something as individualised as possible for that person because, like I said, we've all got strengths, weaknesses, different makeup, and if we all just follow the same plan, then to my mind and to what I've seen, we're, we're not going to get the same results. So for me, that's why it's important to really, really nail down as something as bespoke to someone as possible. And how do you arrive at that? intervention what testing do you do to help understand the, the training needs for that individual yeah so typically if a client came to see me and let's just say that they are going to they've signed up for a marathon let's say in 12 16 weeks it's the first time ever essentially what we're just trying to do is just establish some baselines so from a nutritional perspective what i tend to look into um, initially is doing a resting metabolic rate test um, so resting metabolic rate, the amount of calories that someone will burn at complete rest through respiration, digestion, hair growth, nail growth, any kind of cellular process is going to burn X number of calories across a day. Now we can predict this for everyone generally through equations that will generally speaking enter in age, height, weight and sex for that person. So it might be for you Charlie that you will burn 2,000 calories, let's say. 
However, when we measure it through gas exchange, that could actually be very, very different to someone. So if your prediction comes out at 2,000 calories, what's actually going on could actually only be 1,500 calories or it could be 2,500 calories. And the practical implication that that can then have is that if your actual metabolism, your resting metabolic rate, was say 500 calories less than you predicted, if I went off your predicted value, I would be potentially overfeeding you by 500 calories per day. And that's a really, really generalized kind of way of thinking about it. But I think it just goes to highlight that potentially there are differences between a predicted method versus an actual method. Conversely, if someone's metabolism is faster, using that general term, than what is predicted, then that person might be under-fueling, you know, there could be an energy deficiency, um, fueling for their training for their races might be an issue, um, so it might not actually have anything to do with their training per se, but actually their fueling requirements are just off. So again, it just allows us to be a little bit more cuter, a little bit more individualised, bespoke to that person. That will also, an RMR test will, will bring up some other metrics as well in terms of how our body uses fats and carbohydrates. Um, which we can go into that if you like, but um, an RMR test traditionally is done first, then I'll do a simple body composition assessment, so looking at muscle mass, body fat, hydration status, and looking if we can make some changes there, whether or not excess body fat is a limiting factor in someone's performance. Um, if it is, then we can look to try and modify that and optimise it. Unfortunately, scale weight doesn't necessarily tell us the true picture. Um, so if we can get an indication, an idea of what is their makeup in terms of from a body composition perspective, then we can look to change that and, and modify that as we go. And then an exercise-based test, I'm sure people are familiar with a VO2 max test or a metabolic efficiency test. Like I said at the start, all we're essentially looking to try and do is just get some baselines. So VO2 max, the, the, the maximum amount of oxygen that our body can consume um, and convert to energy. Whenever I try and take on new information, I always try and think of in the most simplistic way possible. And for me, VO2 max, the size of your engine, you know, kind of does someone have a big V12 engine or does someone have a small one litre sized engine? Now, we want people to have as big an engine as possible. But also what we want to establish from that test as well is some key thresholds. So ventilatory thresholds, typically one and two that can be um, strongly correlated to things like your lactate threshold, your lactate turn point, depending on which, which your vocabulary is. And that will highlight to us where that individual may stop working aerobically. So the point of say VT1 could be around the end point of zone two. Now, if someone is a endurance athlete, we want them to be able to work at a higher percentage of their VO2 max as possible. So it just, like I say, it just allows us to get some baseline data and we can use that information to then put a more rigid, structured program in place for that person. So I did your testing not too long ago. Uh, so the resting metabolic rate test is probably the most enjoyable sports science test I've ever done. Yeah, it's the easiest <laughs> test I've ever done. <laughs> so I was laying on my back, there's a mask on my face and the, the tubes are analysing the amount of oxygen, carbon dioxide, is that, that correct? Yep. So it measures the volume of O2 that we're, that we're breathing in versus the volume of carbon dioxide that we're breathing out. Yeah, so it's the easiest test you yeah. can do, just basically come in, 
come in generally speaking in a fasted state avoid caffeine don't do, don't have done any structured exercise that morning and we just try and encourage everyone to just use it as 30 to 40 minutes to just relax have a nap go over the ferries and just chill basically um I suppose you don't have to adjust down for charlie's sort of lack of hair growth in that unfortunately <laughs> not doing with the sort of more generic yeah exactly yeah fine yeah Good. Okay, so you did that, Charlie. What other tests were involved in your in your assessment? So we we skipped the body composition part of it in the end, which actually that might be quite interesting to look at at a future date if we look at that. And what we'll do also, we get some pictures on our social media of this. Uh, and then I did the running based treadmill VO two max yep. test, although it wasn't technically a VO two max test. So could you just talk through maybe the the specifics of of what what you need to do and what you're trying to achieve with that testing? Yeah. So. Traditional VO2 max test would be a step test. So you did, <coughs> excuse me, you do um, a one minute, one minute ramp or step test, as it were. So each each minute it would increase. But if it's done on the treadmill, it would increase by one kilometer per minute, basically until you've decided you've had enough. Okay. So the idea is to try and take you to your maximal fatigue. Um, the thing, the test that we did was a slightly longer version of that, two minute. Yeah. yeah, so we would do, can, can range between two, three or four minute stages. The reason being around that is because we wanted to get an indication of how well your body uses fats and carbohydrates across a range of exercise intensities. So we can get that through a resting metabolic rate test, but we then want to see how your body, how your metabolism is, um, is performing under exercise. Now the benefits of doing that is it means that we can then ultimately learn to fuel you in a correct manner and in a correct method. So as an example, if someone is an endurance athlete, we want that person to be able to use fats as well and for as long as possible. Now if someone is particularly inefficient with their fuel use in terms of their fat use and they start ripping through carbohydrates too early on or at too early intensity, the practical implications that that's going to lead to is either they've got to continuously keep fueling themselves with carbohydrates, or if they don't do that, the effect of that is they're going to typically bonk and hit the wall. So if we can encourage your body to start using more fats for longer, we can then spare muscle glycogen, the stored form of carbohydrates, for when exercise intensity really, really requires it, typically at higher intensities, so again, we just get that information so we can look to put more of a specific fueling strategy in place for you rather than just saying, yeah, I'm going to give you X number of calories, X number of protein, X number of carbs and fats. So that's generally why we would do a potentially longer stage test rather than a traditional VO2 max test, whereas one minute stages and just go until you basically can't go any further. The test was horrific. <laughs> I have to say, it was really, really hard. Um, but that's the kind of that's it's generally the point, only it? you, you, you know. Kind of, I think people get a little bit afraid of them. But I mean, I haven't done one for a while, so you know, kind of very easy for me to say. But I mean, generally speaking, they're only really, really hard for the last Few three, yeah. two to three, four minutes. Generally, they start off at a very, very low intensity. You know, whether it's walking pace or a very, very light jog walking pace and then we just gradually build up that intensity like i said until you can't yeah. go any further but what it gave me was a really clear indication about why i should change my training because mm -hmm. i kind of knew a couple of the things superficially but 
I hadn't really understood why I needed to do the things yeah. that you suggested that I do. So it was well worth it for the for the information because I've since changed my training and it's going really well. So yeah, the with that, I mean, quite a common quite a common thing or theme that I seem to pick out is that people don't do or you know if, if you're not a professional athlete you know I can I can understand it I think we can go into reasons why I think this is the case but generally speaking people won't do a huge amount of genuine zone two training in my opinion the reasons are that a it's pretty boring you know to to sit on a a bike or to go for a plod and keep your heart rate at a subjective very very low level um, you know you almost kind of feel and you know, I get clients that say geez it's actually quite difficult to keep your heart rate so low it's typically pretty boring like I said you've got to commit some volume to it so if, if we've got busy families work schedules then we might not be able to commit huge amounts of hours to zone two work so when we do train, if we've only got, say, an hour per day to train, people want to feel they want to try and get the maximum out of that hour. And typically, they'll try and blitz themselves as hard as they possibly can, try and make the most of that hour. Whereas if we can actually just pull back that intensity, and what I often see is that people's low-intensity work is actually too high, and their high-intensity work is actually too low. So they often just spend time, I think is what we identify with you, is that you're kind of where your strengths were, we're kind of in that middle grey area where we're looking to try and basically, when we do go high intensity, we want to go high. And when we go low intensity, we actually want to go super low. And that's generally the, the thing that I seem to pick up in certainly weekend warrior athletes or amateur endurance athletes for sure. So these jump miles type stuff, the stuff in the middle where you, you may be not making an optimised adaption to improve your performance, for instance, that's kind of maybe yeah. where you were sitting in that mid-zone. So if I'm right, to help us move to more fat dominant, we're trying to increase our zone two training. Yeah. And then in terms of if we wanted to, you know, if we're gonna train for something that's a bit more on a rugby, for instance, our training might differ. It might be nice to just cover, we've sort of covered, Charlie mainly does endurance events at the moment, how might that be different to what you might see with someone who does a team sport, for instance? Yeah, well, we know that, you know, through the research that carbohydrates are king for performance, you know, and if we are underfueled and, you know, kind of if we haven't taken on the required amount of carbohydrates to fuel us for that high intensity, then, you know, we're just going to be running on empty. So typically speaking, if you are, going to, if you are a team sport athlete, whether it's rugby, football, hockey, whatever it is, then we know that your carbohydrates or the, the, the energy that we're going to have to use is going to be coming from carbohydrates. So if we are running on empty, you're just not going to be able to get the, the performance outcome that you, the, that's desired. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we go a blanket high carbohydrate intake or a blanket low carbohydrate intake. What it means is that we're looking to try and fuel for the work required so there will be some sessions and that's whether or not you are an endurance athlete or whether you're a team sport um, athlete that we do go on what's called a carbohydrate periodized approach so some sessions if they are of high intensity or if the volume is particularly long or if you've got multiple sessions in the day then yes that day might be a higher carbohydrate intake compared to let's say a low intensity or a recovery day 
where we might pull back on carbohydrates and actually increase maybe a, a slight increase in, in fat intake or a slight increase in protein to help promote repair, recovery, so on, so on. So it's just like if you're training to become to, to do a to do a marathon, you're not just going to do the same session Monday through to Sunday. Some sessions will be longer in, in volume and shorter and, and lighter in intensity. Some sessions will be harder intensity or high intensity, low volume. So if we've just got the same blanket nutrition approach, we're not going to be getting the same adaptations that we're going to be getting as if our fueling requirements match our training requirements. So, you know, kind of, I do get athletes that, and one, one recent client kind of stands out in, um, in the memory saying, if you're going to tell me to go on a ketogenic diet, then I'm not going to be able to do it. And I said, no, 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 no. You're a triathlete, you know, we need carbohydrates in your system, but we will do some sessions that are lower in carbohydrates and some sessions where, you know, we will go, we will fuel you. Um, and I simply just don't want a traffic light system. So green being high carb, amber being medium carb intake and red being low carbohydrates. So it's just for me and for, for the individual, it's just an easy visual representation of how to structure your nutrition and based purely around that carbohydrate intake. Could you give our listeners an indication about how they might understand the heart rate zones for different training methods? So we've spoken already about the kind of the zone two heart rate zone for, for endurance athletes, but is there a way that you could help people understand what it might feel like or, or what they might use to track their intensity, their exercise intensity? Yeah, so I mean, if, if we accept, let's just say that heart rate monitors don't exist, you know, and we need to get an indication of how hard a session is or isn't, for generally speaking for around that zone two work whether it is on a run or on a bike is normally around conversational pace so if you are going out on a sunday afternoon for a you know kind of 50k bike ride as an example ask yourself the question can you could you perform that session whilst having a conversation just like we are now if the answer is no and if the conversation is broken and you've got to have to, you know, kind of gasp for air, then that's probably an indication that carbon dioxide is being produced and we need to try and get rid of that carbon dioxide. So it's an indication of exercise intensity probably reached or gone beyond that first VT1 threshold. So that would be, um, that would be one, say, measurement um, or subjective measure of intensity. Another one could be, can you breathe through your nose? You know, kind of if you generally can, then we know that probably below that first VT1 threshold, and, and it's it's interesting when I do test people and they've got obviously the gas mask on, obviously because it's in a confined environment, you can actually hear their breathing through the mask. So when I start to hear that breath in the mask, I can probably make a bit of a pitch and think, I'd probably say that they've made that that first leap, gone past VT1, or if we were to take lactate, um, they've probably gone past that first lactate threshold, generally speaking. Um, but those would probably be the two indicators of intensity. Um, can you breathe through your nose and can you have a conversation? If you can't do either of those things, then you've probably gone too far and you just need to pull back. What about the top end? So it, you also mentioned about training 
with higher intensity. Can you explain what that might feel like and what that should be like and maybe an idea of the type of session that you would do to achieve that higher intensity? Purely from a psychological perspective, you know, I personally kind of, if you're not scared of the session, then <laughs> it's probably not hard enough. You know, and if you, you know, if you take that to a weight room, you know, if you're going to stick, you know, a, um, a bar on your back and do a squat, you know, if you're not underneath that squat rack and you're thinking, geez, I'm not sure whether I can lift this, this is like, I'm going to have to seriously put in some grunt work here, then you're probably not lifting heavy enough or, depending on what adaptation you're going for, of course, but also from your conditioning side of things, if you're not looking at it with a little bit of an element of, geez, this is going to be brutal, then I would probably say you're not going hard enough. What would a typical session be? You know, standard interval-based work, so it could be a minute on, 30 on, um, slightly longer, maybe two minutes with, um, you know, two to one rest ratio. Um, but generally speaking, I think you should look at it and think, right, I'm, I'm not, I'm pretty afraid of this session, I'm not looking forward to it. Um, that's, I mean, I can tell you there's no research to support that, but I think if you ask people who are generally doing some serious high intensity work, they would look at it and think, Jesus, this is going to be minging. Sounds yeah. like your run yesterday, you was a little bit intimidated <laughs> yeah. by your run yesterday, by the sounds of it, that sounds yeah. like it was perfectly pitched. One of our, our colleagues, one of our colleagues, Pierre, um, who's a very good runner, and he said, oh, well, why don't you have a go at, at this run? Um, I, I do six one-mile intervals with a 90-second walk in between each one yeah, I mean, uh, at 10% lower than your race pace. So I thought, <laughs> so I had a look, <laughs> realised that was really quite fast um, and then immediately decided five was plenty and then one kilometre in I decided four was enough. So, so yeah, I did four one-miles in the end and it was absolutely savage. But, yeah. Um, um, but yeah. So I, I suppose that has some subjective grounds yeah. to to support that you know and i was scared shitless of the, of the session I thought yeah, there really so, <laughs> um, but i would i think where people get some of their high intensity interval sessions wrong is actually not performing a structured warm-up and a progressive warm-up so they'll often you know and i'm guilty of it you know I, very, very rarely warm up and just, you know, get in and just get it done with. Um, but what will people will tend to do is whether, whatever the, the session is, whether it's on the bike or treadmill, rower, skier, whatever it is, they'll often try and hit that interval, whether it is, let's say, you're doing two minutes on, 30 seconds off, one minute off. They'll start that first interval at a relatively low heart rate. So therefore, the interval length isn't long enough to get your heart rate to the desired response so therefore in that recovery period because you've only got it to say 75 80 percent of your max heart rate then it comes down and so let's say you're doing i don't know six by two minutes on one minute off your time period actually in that top end work the first two intervals you could actually well let's get rid of that because we didn't actually get to the we might have only briefly touched onto that top end work. So again, what I said at the beginning in terms of people's high intensity work, what they think is high intensity is actually too low because their warm up potentially is not as hard and they should be hitting that first interval almost at the heart rate intensity that they need to be hitting. So I think a warm up is key um, and progressing that warm up as well. Um, but you know, kind of otherwise you're just not 
achieving the, the, the amount of volume required at that top end. We talk a lot about the same thing in, in, a, in a slightly different training sense when I'm talking about rehab or strength training, don't you? You talk about, you know, if you're not getting enough reps that kind of make a difference, then you're not getting the desired adaption that you might want. You know, like if you're prescribing, let's say, three sets of 10, for instance, but actually only the last two reps of that 10 are actually particularly difficult. If you want a strength adaption, that might not be yeah. enough. So it's, it's a similar thing, basically. We're trying to get enough mm-hmm. reps or, or work done at the point at which the adaption you're after is being made, essentially. 100%, yeah, yeah. I wonder if the, because uh, I've heard about the face test with lifting, you know, if your face isn't looking like it's working hard, then it's probably not, it probably fits with, well, I mean, with you, your endurance. You, know, you can also look at, you know, with strength as the speed of the bar. You know, mm-hmm. if someone's gonna do typical one rep, one rep max, if the bar pings straight back off the chest that they're doing a bench press, you're gonna like, well, it should be, Again, you should be scared of the bar, thinking, well, geez, am I actually going to be able to lift this? If you can just ping it straight off your chest, and like, well, you're probably operating at 60, 70% of your 1RM. So, um, you know, and it's, I think it's the same from an endurance perspective. If you are going to go top end, well, they're, they're pretty minging, and, you know, I, I quite enjoy programming them for people, but I don't <laughs> think people enjoy, enjoy receiving them. I get the old red. I reckon I've got the red face, like looking like you're nearly dead face. So I reckon I do have that for endurance. Yeah, yeah and you know you get that horrible salty taste in your mouth. Some people, you know, some people's tolerance to it are pretty high. Other people, you know, kind of they really really struggle with it. Um, do you think there are differences with people's ability to adapt to training? Do some people adapt better than others? Is that based on anything that you're aware of? Is there? Is it? I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure people are fast responders and, you know, kind of slow responders. Um, I'm sure genetics will play a part. Um, but I'm, I suppose, from the school of thought that your, that your genetics will load the gun, be a lifestyle and pull the trigger. And that's whether or not from a, a training perspective, just your lifestyle with it is just basic nutritional habits, you know, Yes, you know, you can say, well, you know, this person is predisposed to be able to perform better in a certain activity, sport, event, so on and so on. You know, I could train to become a sprinter, but I'm never going to be, I'm never going to be a sprinter because I just don't have the right genetics for it. You know, I could get faster, but am I ever going to be fast? No. But, you know, so yes, I'm sure there are people that are predisposed to certain things but I always think well what do you continuously practice you know if you are if you are continuously in the gym you know and you're lifting weights well is it the genetic is it that person's genetics or is it just the fact that they've committed x number of months years decades to training in the gym so I think I think the role of genetics can often be used as a bit of an excuse but if I think if you look at it and they say, okay, well, what's, what do you normally do on a day-to-day basis? Do you exercise? No, but I've got poor genetics. Mm. How about you exercise first, yeah. and then let's let's look at that. Um, yeah, give yourself a chance. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, and just had a, a call with a client today, and I just said, look, just keep showing up, just keep turning up, just keep doing the work, um, and if you're consistent over a period of time, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen over two, three, four weeks, but if you continuously show up, your chances are, or the chances of success, whether it is in a, an event, 
sports or so are likely to be greater if you've banked that time under the bar, time out on the road, time on the bike, whatever it is. So, I was about to ask you because this the title of this or the inspiration for this podcast was pushing for a personal best, pushing for a PB. And it sounds like you've already mentioned, you know, measure, make sure you're measuring, not guessing, um, making sure your training is pitched at the right intensities, not in that sort of middle zone. Um, but also that you've just come up with another that sounds absolutely fundamental, which is consistency. And and it sounds really simple, and I'm sure everyone would would ne- would probably think of it. But how often do you see that people just don't get the consistency right? Yeah, I mean it's it's rife, I think, you know, kind of, it's, it's an area that, you know, I think people really, really struggle with. They, they expect to see whether it is from a fat loss perspective or a weight loss perspective, they, they expect to see the changes on the scale overnight. You know, they look at it and it's, geez, you know, I'm not losing weight, I'm not doing this, you know, dieting doesn't work, exercise doesn't work, I'm going to give up. And it's like, well, you know, have you if you backed this up over 4, 8, 10, 12, 16, 6 months, so on and so on, if you have and nothing changes, okay, then let's do a little bit of a deeper dive, you know, and I get a lot of kind of requests from clients to do um, blood tests, you know, and I think we're in a little bit of a danger of, of specifically looking for a diagnosis, you know, oh, I can't lose weight because of my thyroid or... I can't lose weight because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, okay, and that's not to say that you don't have an over or underactive thyroid at all, but what's your what's your ha- what's your lifestyle habits like? Do you do do you any, do you any exercise? No, I don't. Do you? How often do you move throughout the day? Well, I do three thousand steps a day. Do you monitor what you eat? Do you track what you eat? No. Okay. Well, why don't we look at that stuff? And there's there's a a meme that I saw going around on social media of a um, cartoon kind of caricature of a line of people queuing up to the doctor's surgery and above it there was a receptionist that you know kind of pills diets and potions whatever it was um, and then next to it was an empty line that had over the top of it with a board receptionist just saying lifestyle changes and lifestyle changes was completely empty but everyone's after a pill we want a potion we want that magic silver bullet I was like, well, why don't we look at your lifestyle, what you're consistently doing day in, day out. It doesn't mean to say that you need to live, you know, kind of like a hobbit and, you know, don't enjoy, you know, life and food. And if you enjoy going out for dinners or going for a cup of beers, cool, have that. But what are you doing consistently? And if the answer is actually, yeah, I do two, two days of exercise and then I kind of go missing for the next four or five days. Okay, well, is it your thyroid or is it the fact that you do no exercise? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to be disciplined most of the time for amateur athletes. Mm. And I think that sometimes, I, I certainly have this as a physio with, with patients, so I, I don't get frustrated with people anymore. It's mm. like, if things are, if you're struggling with this, that's okay. You know, it might not be the right time for you to really be pushing for this. Yeah. Maybe now you're just living your life and, and doing what you can. Well, I think... And this is just my personal belief, but I, I don't think people will make a change, whether it's exercise, lifestyle, so on and so on, until the risk or the reward is great enough. So 
yes, I work with a lot of um, professional and amateur-based athletes, but I also work with a lot of, in inverted commas, normal people. And a lot of the excuses that I hear from the normal population would be, I don't have time, X, Y, and Z. Lots of these genuine excuses, not to discredit them, to say that they're not busy, they don't have busy families, and so on and so on. So it's all right for you, you, don't, you know, you've got the time to do it. And it's like, well, okay, let's use that. If let's say that you want to lose 10 kilos, if I gave you a million quid for every kilo that you lost, what would you do? Well, I'd get up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. to do it. So it's like, well, you know, it's now you just value the reward of doing it. Or conversely, if you go to the doctors and say that if you don't lose 10 to 15 kilos, I'm going to be diagnosing you with type 2 diabetes. Well, I better, I better do something here. So then you make a change because you then value the risk or the reward of it. That that's makes it sound like it's dead simple. It is simple, but the, the complexity is actually putting it into practice. It's, it's a simple concept, but ultimately life is hard for 100%. a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah, making a judgment. Yeah, I'd also say, I just think people need, people need a goal that just gets them going, you know, and gets them, gets a bit of fire in their belly and, and so on and so on. If it's just, you know, kind of, yeah, I just want to do a 5K. So, well, you could probably do it. Everyone could, most people could go and do a 5K now. It's like, well, or I want to lose a little bit of weight. Well, what does a little bit look like? Put a number on it. You know, I could say, well, just reduce your carbohydrate intake for two days. That will reduce your weight. How much do you want to lose? I want to lose 10 kilos in 12 weeks as an example. Okay, well, now we've got a goal. We can reverse engineer it. What are the daily habits that you need to put in place to do that? Right, I want to try and achieve a PB, whether it's 5K, 10K, marathon, Ironman, whatever it is. Well, let's put that goal in place and then let's work back. How are we going to get there? What are the daily habits that you're going to do to get there? What are the weekly habits that you need to stack on top of each other? And again, it just comes down to consistency. Um, you know, I've got some clients that, that nickname themselves Fortnite, you know, because they're only sticking to things for two weeks at a time. Oh, this doesn't last, this doesn't work. You know, and they fall off the wagon, they come back in. Right, I'm, I'm, no, this, this time's different, Rich. I'm sorry. I saw a really nice plot uh, the other day. It was on Instagram somewhere. Um, I'll find it and put it in our stories. And it was um, it was a graph basically that showed consistency. And you saw, you know, the the trend line was going up pretty steadily. And then there was one there. The next plot was motivation. You saw like obviously it spiked and then it dropped and it spiked mm-hmm. and it dropped. And I think sometimes that's the key, right? If we if we only rely on the times that we're motivated, but that can drop. That can change within an hour within two hours it can change within a day or two days or whatever and that can change really quickly but if you can focus on those habits those those things that break down the ability to get towards the target we're much more likely to be consistent because we're focusing on i've just got to show up to the gym well i think i think if we if if we only ever rely on motivation we're going to struggle oh i'm not motivated to do any exercise today i'm not motivated to do this and you know kind of I'm sure people who have got kids aren't motivated every second of the day to do the, you know, the parenting jobs. I'm sure that's the case, but you do them anyway. You kind of well, I'm not going to look after the kids today because I'm not motivated to do it. It's like well, you've got to, you've got to do it, you know. So I think if we just rely on motivation to get us through, then we're always going to struggle. I just say, well, what happens if you just did it anyway? What happens if you, what happens if you did any exercise without any motivation? 
you never regret an exercise session, really, do you? You know, you don't get run and go, "Cool, I wish I'd done that run." There, there are, you know, there are different tricks that I think can can help. You know, if you really, really can't be asked to do it, just put your gym kit on. So if you get home from work and you're, "Geez, oh, I've got a workout scheduled," I really, really can't be asked. So right, just get into your gym kit, see how you feel. Right, you've taken that next step. Just go to the gym. Just turn up, do something, and then lo and behold, 45 minutes into it, you've completed your session. Not exactly like you say. You're never, ever, ever going to regret. You might regret doing it at the time. And why the fuck have I been here? What am I doing? I hate this and so on and so on. But that feeling afterwards, self-patting about, say, right, I really didn't want to do it today, but I've done it. Um, and if you just constantly keep showing up and... I've got a bit of a kind of thought around that your your environment will always trump your willpower. So if you know if someone's trying to lose a little bit of weight um, and they've constantly got junk food in every single cupboard, their environment junk food is just staring at them. So yes, their willpower they might not be able to, or they might be able to get through it for a week, two weeks, three weeks. But if it's constantly in your face. At some point, you know, you, you're going to dip into that um, into that junk food cupboard. Um, so I think looking at your environment as well. So whenever I, you know, I start with a new client, we'd we'd ask those questions. Okay, what is your environment like? How can we set your environment up to give you the best chance of success? Um, well, you, it's like it's like you're not going to go to the gym and eat a kebab, are you? Well, exactly. You know, <laughs> I'm sure if you, you go to the gym, you work out. Yeah. If you put, you know, if you had a room of ten alcoholics and I was a recovering alcoholic, and you put me in a room constantly with these ten alcoholics, day in day out, I could guarantee you yeah. that you're going to be that eleventh alcoholic by the end of it. You know. So I think your environment will always trump your willpower to a certain extent, and I think that if you just rely on motivation. To only exercise or to only do anything when we exercise, I think you're going to struggle long term. We've we've kind of touched into this a little bit, but body weight. Mm-hmm. And if we're thinking, of, if we bring this back a little bit to sort of PB or reaching a target or reaching a goal, performance maybe is a better way of putting it. Yeah. In terms of body weight or body mass, how much uh, and what that body mass is, how might that influence, let's say, performance? I think it could be a huge thing, you know, if if you're an endurance athlete or even just the everyday person, if we bring it back to or unpack it as an endurance athlete, if you're carrying excess mass, and generally speaking, you know, we'd, we'd use that or describe that as, say, body fat, you know, and I'm, I'm quite straightforward and quite upfront with clients, I said, but imagine how you would feel, how do you think you would feel if I strapped a 10 kilo weight vest to you and ask you to go and do your training. Well, geez, I'd feel slower. Chances might, the risk of injury would, would go up. You know, there's excess load going through, you know, knees, ankles, hips, so on, so on. So right, cool. And what do you reckon would happen if I then took that 10 kilo weight vest off you? Well, yeah, you know, kind of, I'd be, feel a lot more, um, obviously lighter, but there's less load going through joints. My risk of injury comes down. Um, that's not to say that we should encourage everyone to be as light 
as possible or as thin as possible or have as low a body fat as possible but I mean if you're looking at elite level endurance athletes they're probably in the realm of somewhere between 7-8% to 12% body fat I would think that's going to be slightly higher for women but it's but it's a massive thing and often if I do get an endurance athlete through the door and we assess body composition that might be their limiting factor so we might then just work with each other over the next 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks and say right well actually you are sitting at 24% body fat as an example now your performance is likely to improve if we can bring that down so we're reducing the excess mass that, you, that you're currently carrying it might not actually have anything to do with their training program design they could have their training their SNC all on point it's actually just a nutritional standpoint they need to work on and then you know you almost treat them as a weight loss client once we've got that into a range that we don't think that is a limiting factor to them then we can say right well now let's actually look at increasing other markers or pushing pushing the needle in other areas but you know I'm sure you guys from a physio perspective as well I'm sure you get patients through the door and you think geez you know kind of issues with your knees that would significantly improve if you lost excess body fat but unfortunately we're not in a position in society where you can necessarily call people out and I'm not just calling them out but discussing that it's quite a sensitive subject and quite rightly for people I think there are ways of communicating that professionally and, and sensitively because it sometimes is the thing just like you're saying about performance yeah. in regards to recovery from many injuries pathologies that could be the thing it could yeah. be that weight loss is the way that you're going to be in less pain you're going to perform better yeah. you're going to be able to do the things you want to do so if you're honest with people and you and you sensitively approach these subjects, then and, and I think that's, that's, that's for me that's the key thing is how do you how do you address that? Just so that you know, because I'm sure a lot of people they're going to be aware of it as well. So it's just how you address that. You know, I, I simply just ask a couple of questions. You know, is there anything in your lifestyle that we could potentially change that could help? Whether it is an injury, whether it is a performance outcome, um, rather than just saying. You'd improve if you, you know, kind of reduce your body fat. Yes, ultimately it would, but it's a way of getting around it and, and just asking asking the right questions for the you know, using the right tool in the toolbox as well. I was gonna say it's probably important also around this is that you, you can also be too too low on your on mm. body fat, especially when we're thinking predominantly about female athletes. Yeah. That's quite important. And and sometimes, especially with performance as well, there's that can be a limiting factor to especially yeah, yeah. increase their injury risk. So it is you have to take this. It is a balancing act and you know the kind of the the ideal scenario would be that you'd work with a client over a long period of time and if they had, let's say they're a triathlete, you would have their race schedule say for the year and you could I don't know, let's say they've got Ironman Bolton coming up and it could be a typically hilly or lots of inclines on on the bike and you say right okay well six eight ten weeks leading up to that we might actually put you into a, a negative energy balance so to try and drop your weight so that when you are performing on the bike and you are climbing and you know you are climbing you're actually climbing with less mass on the bike which is then only going to improve you or help you on the bike um, 
or there are some cases where actually having a little bit of extra mass might be a, be a positive thing where you can put more force through the pedals and, and so on and so on. So I just think matching your, your training up with race schedules, training plans and so on and so on is, is, is the key thing. There's, there'll be people who are in, in the area of London, for example, or, or sort of close enough to travel in who could access your services. But what about if there's people further away or can't access your services for any reason? What, are there any tricks you might give for people to help measure any of these factors? So you said that if you're not testing, you're guessing. Are there any ways that people might be able to just self-assess for this? Yeah, I mean, if, if we look at body composition or body mass reduction, you know, kind of, you often see it in social media, you know, don't weigh yourself daily, get off the sad step and so on and so on. And I just think, well, no, no, no. Research shows that people who track their weight more consistently and more regularly actually have better results. So, and, you know, talk about the reasons why. Essentially, if, you know, if you say that you're only going to weigh yourself on day one and day 10, so 10 days in between weigh, weighing yourself, well, your weight fluctuates daily. You know, kind of, if you do monitor it daily, you'll see that some days someone could be, start at 100 kilos, they come down to 99.8, they bounce to 100.4, and it bounces up and down, and that could be down to salt in the diet, hydration, carbohydrate intake, um, you know, food in the stomach, digestion, bowel movements, all of these things can come into play. Um, and if you only weighed yourself on day 10, you could have rebounded to your original starting weight and you hop on the scales, God's sake, this doesn't work, you know, dieting doesn't work for me, I've put all this effort in, you know, I've been monitoring what I eat and so on and so on, I'm not losing any weight. It's like, well, you know, you've just missed out the previous nine days worth of data. It's like a stock, you know, if you're gonna invest in, invest in a company or invest in stock, if you've only got two data sets, you can't make you can't see the trend of what's going on with that stock. So you say, well, geez, how, how do I know that, where, where, what direction it's going in? But if you've got data day in, day out, well, then you can see that things are coming down. So that would be one, you know, kind of don't be, don't be afraid of weighing yourself. Um, if that is a goal of someone's, you know, it might not be for everyone's, but if it is, hop on the scales first thing in the morning, try and be consistent with when you do it. Normally people's scales are in the kitchen. Uh, sorry, in the, in the bathroom, wake up in the morning, go to the toilet, hop on the scales in the nude, make a note of it, right, okay, it's, you know, I've gone from 100 down to 99.6, and then just average your weight out over, over the seven days. And if the average is less than when you started, you can assume that you've lost weight. That would be, that would be one for, as, just purely as an example, for scale weight, yeah. But I think also, but I mean, testing is... Testing is key, I think, you know, because again, like I said at the start, if you're not testing, we are guessing. Um, so if you can get into someone to get some form of objective data, then fantastic. Um, if you can't, then, you know, looking at well, what, do you, what do your clothes feel like? Are, are your runs getting easier? If someone does, I don't know, let's say 10K in an hour, and their average heart rate when they started was 160. If they do 10K in an, in an hour, so they still achieve the same outcome, 
but their resting or their average heart rate has come down from 160 to 130. Well, you can argue that, well, you've, it's, it's taken you less effort to achieve the same outcome. So, you know, there's various different ways in which you can measure your progress for sure. My training has completely changed since having a heart rate watch and strap. It's really helped me to gauge my training intensity, especially now I understand a bit more about it. So uh, I quite like the numbers, I quite get quite interested in that anyway. So if you can get them fairly cheaply as well nowadays, you yeah, don't spend I mean, too much money. Normally with, with clients and they say, you know, which, which ones you normally pick up, you know, if, if it's just a heart rate monitor you're looking for, I normally go for a Polar H10, I believe. It's pretty kind of straightforward to use app that it comes with that you can download, it's free to download. That's generally my, my go-to. Um, you know, yes, you can, most people will either have a Garmin or an Apple Watch or something like that, which can read off your, read off your wrist, but generally speaking, I would say that um, having a chest strap is probably a little bit more accurate, especially when there's excessive arm movement going yeah. whether it's you know, rowing or skiing or running or so on and so on. I found the watch wasn't really hitting the top end of it. It was like, it was underestimating yeah. it. And I didn't realize it until I got a strap, yeah. chest strap. And I was like, oh, right. So my heart rate's much higher, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which was just interesting to see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really useful for training. So we've got some nice points there. It's basically, we, we want to test regularly so that we're not guessing. That's going to help us sort of really make a bespoke plan for the, the athlete person in front of us. Uh, we, we all probably want to revisit that testing as well, which is which I think is key and probably a point we didn't make. It's not like a one-stop shop. No, no, you know, just like with any kind of test or if you put an intervention in place, you, you need a bit of an incubation period to know whether the plan is working. Generally speaking, I will bring clients back in every 8, 10, 12 weeks, depending on the test. You know, if you do a VO2 max test or a metabolic efficiency test, every other day, you're arguably not going to see some changes or day in, day out. Body composition is maybe a little bit different and we can see trends happen a little bit earlier on, maybe every two to three weeks that I might look to get someone in just to, just to monitor things and see how it's going. You, know, you also want to know, not only do you want to know whether the plan is working, but you also want to know whether the plan is not working as early as possible to, you know, let's not waste time, money, effort. If the plan's not working, we need to change it. But I think it's just important to stress that it's, 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 it's a tool. It's a tool in the toolbox. It's not the be all and end all, you know. So it, it, for me, it's just choosing the right tool for the right job. Does my mum at 68, 69 years old, does she need to do a VO2 max test? Well, arguably not, you know. So mum, when you go for your walks, try and, try and keep it below conversational pace. Gen, real general rule of thumb, but for, so like I said, it's just, for me, it's just picking the right tool for the right toolbox. Can you tell the listeners a bit about how they might get in touch with you and learn more about your new product? Yeah, so um, I'm not a massive one on, on social media, so if, if anyone's got any questions, then you can email me, uh, richard at humanperformancelab.co.uk or the website at humanperformancelab.co.uk. Pretty open and pretty honest with people firing in questions and stuff like that. So. Um, but yeah, that's generally where, where people can find me. And through Pure Sports Medicine, obviously. And we'll, we'll just put you on the spot a little bit here, but um, anything that you've been particularly interested in in the last sort of 12, 24 months, any cool books, any podcasts you listen to, anything that sparked your interest that isn't necessarily work-related? 
Yeah, I could probably go into that on a completely separate note, but I'm you know, spending a bit of time working with different mentors that are outside of the fields of strength and conditioning, physiology, nutrition, and so on and so on, just around consistency, habits, you know, and, th- and things like that, and just showing up every day. Um, you know, the art of goal setting, you know, starting to do some some cool different exercises that, that you can do to set up, you know, your goals, whether it's a long, long-term vision and breaking that down into, you know, smaller quarterly chunks and then how do you know whether you're hitting those quarterly chunks. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say just a little bit more of a holistical sense rather than just focusing purely on exercise. Um, you know, as I tend to get older, interest, you know, go elsewhere and things like that and how to get performance benefits. So. Um, but I'm sure that could be a topic for another day. Yeah, I, like, I really like that Atomic Habits book. That, that yeah, sparked, yeah. That sparked my interest into that little yeah. and you can Once you go off that one, you start going out. Yeah, you do. Out, I, I think that stuff is, is really interesting. I think that's the stuff that people are really struggling with. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, we all know what to eat. We know that we should be exercising, and that's very general, but you know what we struggle with is stacking those habits and putting that into a place not just over a week but months years and so on and so on so yeah so but that's generally around where my interests outside of work stuff are going around. thanks very much yeah it's great awesome. great pleasure yeah thank you very thanks much us. thanks for listening if you've enjoyed the show subscribe and give us a five-star rating we'll keep bringing you the gold Follow us on Instagram at the.healthspace and for any questions or ideas for future content, email us at thehealthspace.co at gmail.com.